Thank you very much for the uh, high privilege of uh, opening and proclaiming God's Word here at Pine Haven uh, again this week. As we uh, come to God's Word, I encourage you to turn with me to Luke chapter 4. Do pray for your uh, pastor, I think every year about somewhere around the end of December when extra services and everything, I had to go to the doctor and get harpoon with steroids and antibiotics, and so I'd be, the voice would come back. So I pray that he's up and about uh, soon. It's bad when a preacher loses his voice. Um, Luke chapter 4 and verse, beginning in verse 16. Let's give uh, careful heed to God's word. Let us all rise together and hear the reading of God's word. Luke chapter 4 and verse 16. Let's stand. So he, that is our Lord Jesus Christ, came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? Amen. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. You may be seated. Let's bow our heads in prayer. O Lord, we come to your word and we confess that we are slow to believe all the things written in the Old and New Testaments, the law, the prophets, and the apostles about you. And so we pray that you would enliven us. As been asked, O Lord, we so plead with you, pour out your Holy Spirit upon us that we may not only be hearers, but that you would plant your word deep in our hearts and bring forth the fruit of it for your glory, and for our eternal good. For in Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Amen. Well, I've entitled this, and we'll sing a slightly new hymn a little bit later that's not there in your bulletin, but it's uh, Blowing the Gospel Trumpet of Jubilee. And you'll see why in just a moment, Lord willing. Now, the Apostle Paul tells us who this Luke is. Uh, Colossians 4.14, we know who he was. He's called the beloved physician. And Philemon 1, he's one of Paul's fellow laborers. Uh, The abandoned apostle, 2 Timothy 4.11, where uh, Paul says, only Luke is with me. Uh, Luke, of course, is the author of the Gospel of Luke. And you remember, he's the one that wants you to know for certain. He writes to Theophilus, uh, I've written these things that you know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. So he wants you to know for sure. 
Now, the, the, the timing of Luke 4 is our, our, our Lord has finished the time of preparation, the time of testing, uh, the intense, he's, he's been led up of the Spirit into the wilderness and undergone that intense period of testing, temptation from Satan, and he has defended himself. And you always think, here we, we just, you're reading in Genesis, and you're going to come very soon to here is Adam, representative of the entire human race, and here he is in paradise, and temptation comes and he fails. Here is Christ, the representative of all of his people, second Adam, and he is in God-cursed wilderness, and he defeats and withstands Satan. Of course, now he is not only defending himself, but Christ is going to go on the offensive. And the same spirit which was powerfully upon him, uh, Mark 1.12, immediately the spirit drove him into the wilderness... That same spirit is now upon Christ as he goes on the offensive, as he begins to preach. In um, Mark 1.14, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. There's a lot of ink written on what that is, and we'll be informed more this morning, Lord willing. In Luke 4.14 and 15, then Jesus returned in the power of the spirit to Galilee. News of him went out through all the surrounding region. You know, Luke's a grand historian. And he not only wants you to know for sure, but you can follow his outline and see where he's going. News of him went throughout all the surrounding region. He taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And now he's going to give you a for instance of that preaching in a synagogue. Now, just to pause a quick second, there's no doubt that Christ has the spirit of the living God the power of that spirit in a unique way. You remember there's the obvious involvement of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit there at Christ's baptism. And that power is not just a one-day wow event, but it continues throughout our Lord's ministry, particularly the same power of the Spirit by which he was incarnate, by which he defeats Satan, by which he would be raised from the dead, that same spirit we are told now works in us who have been united to Christ as we sang in that wonderful hymn, that same spirit is going to be, and power is going to be demonstrated in his work, his preaching, and his teaching. Now, that's a easily drawn from the text, but it also has something to do with you and me. Every Christian is by definition born again, believes in Christ, as again, as we sang in a hymn, is united to Christ. Therefore, you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't cry out for the working of the Spirit and His powering and all the rest of it to God for Him. Yes, we certainly do. But I tell you particularly, as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the day in which we live, in which it just seems like every time you, you, you know, I know we believe in total depravity of men and everything, but every time you turn on the TV, it's some new, outrageous thing. We need to pray for the power, what the, what the old writers used to call the unction of the Holy Spirit. And for that to be upon every time the, the Word of God is read and preached, proclaimed, taught here in this church, in your home, 
That is gotten by prayer. Uh, an old master, Ian Bounds, says this unction vitalizes God's revealed truth, makes it living and powerful. Spurgeon says this unction makes God's truth powerful and interesting, draws and attracts, edifies, convicts, saves. Spurgeon then urges prayer for the Spirit who brings this indescribable, inimitable something, an unction from the Holy One. Let us continue instant, constant fervent in supplication. You want to see revival in your family. You want to see revival in Christ's church, in this congregation. It will be when we see more and more persons on their knees crying out to Christ for the outpouring of that Holy Spirit. Well, Christ is preaching and teaching the kingdom of God. He's preaching and teaching repentance the announcement of the grace of God and salvation, <clears throat> the kingdom of God. And such was the divine power shown both in the manner and matter of Christ's preaching that even those who had a, a, a spiteful and opposing character joined in admiring him. And so Luke is going to give us this <clears throat> striking instance of how Christ became known and what his great Galilean ministry was like. And so we're told about this great sermon of our Lord. Now, uh, I know you don't have an outline in your bulletin, anybody who is jotting down a few things. There's a couple of lessons we've touched on, but the first main point is Jesus begins his public ministry doing what he had always done. He begins his public ministry doing what he had always done. Look at verse 16. So he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as his custom was. And as his custom was. He went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Now, there's a couple of things that you and I ought to be careful to note here. One of them, as his custom was, where he had been brought up. Now, I'm glad uh, that uh, I have... Two of my grandchildren and her good friend with her, yeah, yeah. And I see some other youngsters here. Um, I wasn't always so cooperative when I was their age. You know, you had to do your Sunday school lesson on Saturday night and uh, memorize your Bible verse for Sunday morning, Sunday school class and everything else. And I wasn't always so cooperative. On Sunday afternoon, matter of fact, I wanted to stay home and watch the wonderful world of Disney. I know that really dates me. But, but my dad would grab me by the ear and Sunday morning, Sunday night, Sunday evening, boy, out the door we go to youth group and to evening worship. Well, look at this, what you're told here. Jesus, when he was brought up as a little boy, his father Joseph would bring him to synagogue for public worship on the Sabbath day. And that's where Jesus learned the scriptures. That's where he sang psalms. That's where prayers were lifted up. No matter how corrupt Judaism had become at this time, yet still there was the reading, hearing, preaching of the scriptures. Now notice a couple of things here. Jesus Christ himself, the incarnate Son of God, maintained a custom, a regular pattern, the good and godly habit of Sabbath worship. I hear people, you know, tell me, well, you know, you don't have to go to church to go to heaven, you know, all this kind of stuff. You don't want to come on the first day of the week in which Christ rose again from the dead 
whom you say is your God and who offered himself upon the cross, in whose death and resurrection is all your hope, and you don't want to be here to worship him on that day? Seems more than a little odd. Weekly worship attendance upon the stated times of public worship is the foundation for any life that glorifies God. Hebrews 10.25, let us consider one another to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Jesus maintained a custom, a regular pattern, the good and godly habit of Sabbath worship, weekly worship attendance. The stated times is the foundation of any life that glorifies God. But also in this keeping the regular pattern, this custom, this godly habit of Sabbath worship, Christ kept the Sabbath. He observed it. Now it was the purpose of the Jewish Sabbath and uh, we've just read this morning in God's providence, Genesis 1, on the Sabbath day God rested, was to point to the Lord's Day, the Christian Sabbath, the first day of the week on which Christ rose again from the dead. Now, when God commanded his people to abstain from working on the Lord's Day, it's not just so we can go fishing. It's not so we can go and have a family day, do our own thing. The Sabbath is for man, but that he might know the refreshment of worship, communing with God, studying his great works in the scriptures, that we might be refreshed in the Lord. So here is our Lord as he begins his public ministry, where he had been brought up, doing what he had always done. And then you notice what he does when he comes in. Notice, this is letter B under that. He stood up to read and he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. Now... Synagogue worship is the pattern of Christian worship. I don't know how many of our guys here are guys in seminary. I know at least one. But that's true. Synagogue worship is the pattern of Christian worship. Now, sadly, in our own denomination, Christian Church of America, I've read and I've heard on more than one occasion men using a sociological, sociology definition of the church and worship. And, and, and it goes like this. Well, the, the, the church is compared to a house built by a giraffe. And immediately you're thinking slim and tall. And he gets visited one day by his elephant visitor. And of course, there's some radical rearranging that needs to be made. Because an elephant isn't tall, but he sure is wide, right? And what this whole... This was like the text, and then the exposition was that we need to justify all kinds of cultural accommodation in the church. My friends, I'm here to tell you that the church and its worship is not the product of human invention and human culture. It is from God in a very long standing. And this is a very important text for demonstrating this very point. We, we know from other sources about synagogue worship that prayers were offered, psalms were sung, there were two readings, one from the law, one from the prophets. So what you read here about Jesus coming into synagogue for the regular worship in the, during this Old Testament time is true to form. 
And at an impressive point in the worship, the Holy Scriptures and a scroll would be carefully unrolled and all would stand out of respect for God's Word, like you find in Ezra. And the teacher would sit in a chair on a raised platform signifying spiritual authority and he would begin to preach and to teach. And the service is concluded with a benediction. Now, you notice there's some parallel. When our spiritual forefathers came and got away from Roman Catholic worship, where there's a, basically a great screen erected between you, the people, and then the monastic choirs would sing praise to God, and the priest would go up to an altar on the back wall and offer, re-offer a sacrifice, and you just sort of observed. Well, when the screen came down, and the pulpit became central, and the Word of God became central, each one of you became involved in the priesthood of all believers in preaching and hearing and worshiping, worshiping God. And, and there wasn't, it wasn't that you know, they went and they said, well, let's see what the, the northern Germans like. And let's see what the southern Germans, let's see what the French, and there was all these refugees that came to Geneva. No, no, it's what does the word of God? The church is to be Christ-shaped, the word of God-shaped. Now, our Lord's scripture reading and sermon So he specifically chooses a text. This is the second thing. Our Lord's scripture reading and sermon. Look in verse 17. He was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. And I've read that before. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and downtrodden, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, gave it back and he says to them today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing now this tells us this you cannot understand the ministry of lord jesus christ and what's going on as he preaches the gospel of the kingdom and what's going on here with all of that until you stop here in isaiah now what's going on in isaiah okay Stay with me here. We're going to make a quick switch back a few years, okay? Israel to the south, Judah to the north, right? Israel is divided after Solomon. And we have to the north a guy named Rehoboam. And he's always called, excuse me, Jeroboam. And he's always called Jeroboam who made Israel to sin. Now, all of you kids, you know, you want to be named something neat. You never want to be named Jeroboam. <laughs> Jeroboam who made Israel to sin. I think I'd like to have a, maybe I can, you can all think of some things. I want to be more of it. Some, something you'd like to have on your tombstone or something you'd like to be known for. And it's not who made God's people to sin. <laughs> and so what he does is he knows that three times a year, all the men are have to go traipsing down to Jerusalem and worship God at the temple. And that's where God ordained his name and his worship. And that's where the priests were, who were sons of Aaron and all the rest of it. And he goes, I'm not going to have a kingdom very long. And so he sets up, hey, that's too far for you to go. 
that's too tough. That's too hard for you. So we'll set up a worship place in the north and one in the south. And by the way, we're going to have some civil service jobs. If you'd like to apply and be a priest, I'll sign you up. Well, of course, the whole country goes off into this idolatry and disobedience. And the Assyrian, you know, the Syrian raiders, then the Assyrians farther from the north come down and, and cart them off and they're heard no more. And you'd think that the southern kingdom would go, you know, we ought not to do what those folks did up north or else the same judgment will come upon us. Duh. <laughs> but you know what happens. They disobey God. God sends his prophets to call them back. And they have a deaf ear. And soon they're carried off into captivity. But Isaiah has a word for them. It's a word about God's grace. It's a word that looks forward to the Messiah, the anointed one, who's going to gather his people and deliver them from destruction, from the darkness of death, and restore the church to spiritual power. The same spirit of Christ which inspired Isaiah to write is now there present as in Christ as from a, a, a fountain. And Christ makes himself the sermon and powerfully applies it. And these are the gracious words in verse 22 at which men marvel. This is the one, the great Messiah, who fulfills Isaiah 61. Isaiah is fulfilled in the life and work of Jesus Christ. For there's nothing in all the Old Testament sufficient for the fulfilling of these words. So the, the Old Testament and in its covenant anticipates, its worship anticipates Jesus Christ. So the first thing we're taught here in this text is that the triune God saves his people. The triune God saves his people. Now it's striking that Isaiah in the Old Testament is inspired by the spirit of Christ and he's speaking in the first person. He speaks for God. And he's anticipating the Lord Jesus Christ so that we hear Christ speak these very words only way back in Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. That means that this Jesus, who was conceived by the Spirit, born the Virgin Mary, has been set apart, anointed by God's Spirit, to do a tremendous, amazing work, glorious work in this fallen world. Remember, Isaiah's name means Yahweh saves. The spirit of the Lord, Yahweh, is upon me. Now, the, the, one of the things that you and I need for living the life in which God has called us to live as Christians is to see something about who God is as well as what he does. And what are we taught here? Well, we're taught that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the triune God. We are taught that one person anointed another person with the third person, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is upon me. So centuries before Christ, centuries before he came into the world and his baptism and these other evidences, the glorious triune God was revealing that he had a purpose and a plan to save his people. But also in the midst of everything else, all the wonders of the gospel, God's grace, Christ's provision, in the midst of all that is the great truth about who God is himself. In Galatians 4, 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. 
This is what Peter preached at Cornelius' house in Acts 10, 36. The word of God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. That word you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after his baptism, which John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me. So, Isaiah lifts up our eyes beyond the ravages of sin and judgment and all of its horrible effects to look to the glory of the second person of the Godhead who has been anointed and sent into the world to accomplish God's mission. The triune God saves his people. But then why has Jesus come here after the baptism and the descent of the Holy Spirit? What's he say in verse 18? Why has he come? To preach the gospel. God anointed me to preach. You probably heard that statement, God has only one son, he made him a preacher. Well, realize everything that Jesus did, he elevates and adorns. You've been to a wedding, right? And you hear those words, he who blessed marriage by his presence at the wedding feast of Galilee where he performed his first miracle. Christ blessed all stations of life. He was a boy, an adolescent. He worked in a carpenter shop. He was good, faithful, obedient, God-honoring. And now he does the same thing for preaching in worship. Everything Jesus did, he elevated and adorned. Here is, besides the direct command to preach the gospel, here as well is another justification for the office of the preaching ministry. Christ, he's been tempted, he's been prepared, he now launches off into his work, his office as mediator. He's been adorned with the Holy Spirit, he has it without measure, and now he adorns the preaching office. Now today, today, the notion is that church and worship is simply a human ordinance, an expression of race, an expression of culture. Therefore, the question, you know, why are you up there preaching? Who in the world do you think you are? Aren't there more effective means than talking heads? I mean, I've... Jesus says, I am a minister, a preacher by divine ordination, divine calling, divine anointing. The ministry of, of the word here below on earth is sent from heaven above. Now, what does that mean? When you come here, I know you were expecting Dr. Alan Stanton. But have you ever noticed how the Apostle Paul speaks as if Jesus Christ was the only preacher? This is in 2 Corinthians 5.20. Now then we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God. Now I want you to think about that. Here's Christ preaching in the synagogue reading Isaiah, who the Spirit of Christ inspired all those days, who spoke for Christ, now Christ in person is speaking that, and he's preaching. 
And so you and I come to worship, and what do you think Jesus would be preaching if he were here today? Well, the apostle says nothing else than what we are preaching. Be reconciled to God. Perhaps you think that it would be so much easier to be a Christian if you could hear Christ in person. Now, I think that would be great (laughs) to hear the Sermon on the Mount, to uh, hear his high priestly prayer in John 17. You know, don't get me wrong. But my friend, who do you think you hear when the gospel of Jesus Christ is preached under the unction of that spirit and faithful to the word of God. Who do we hear? One of the great truths of the Reformation was that the preaching of the word of God is the word of God. And that isn't just, you know, the opinion of some guy who I don't normally see in the pulpit here. Second Swiss Confession. Second Helvetic Confession, as it's called. Wherefore, when this word of God is now preached in the church, preachers by preachers lawfully called, we believe that the very word of God is proclaimed and received by the faithful. This means that when the gracious, glorious gospel of Jesus Christ is preached to you, the Lord Jesus Christ is fulfilling this great office of the prophet and preacher, the great doctor, the teacher of his church. He is proclaiming the good news of the gospel. It's not sort of an impersonal invitation, impersonal command to come to him and believe in him. It's as if he was here, extended his nail-scarred hands to you, to hear, to heed. And that's why good preachers, right preachers, don't run unless they're sent. And they are to be faithful stewards. Paul says that's how you want to know how you think of us? stewards of the mysteries of Christ. I've been entrusted with this faithful, this body of truth, this system of truth revealed by the Holy Spirit. And I always say to folks that, that, that every bit of gospel truth, every bit of the Word of God and what it teaches is blood bought. Therefore, it is to be treated with respect and held as a faithful charge by those who proclaim the word of God. So here is the great God, the incarnate Jesus Christ. And he says, I have been given a great commission, a great anointing in order to preach. My friends, I think little of myself. And as the years go by, I'm brought to think less and less. But I think highly of this calling, this office since it's been adorned by the Son of God, elevated by his own official function, he says, Father, heaven has sent me to be a preacher on earth, set me apart, ordained and anointed me to this great purpose of preaching, proclaiming the good news. Well, look at the substance of this, the acceptable year of the Lord. Of course, everything that Jesus is going to do shows God's grace and favor. But to what do these words refer? Isaiah speaks of a particular year, an acceptable year of the Lord, the year when the Lord showed his favor. And where this is, is straight out of the Old Testament, Leviticus 25. And what this was, was the year of Jubilee. It's like seven times seven, 49 years, and there'd be enough 
And then on the 50th year, there was the Jubilee. And what happened on that year? Well, everybody got to go home. If your home had been lost, your possessions lost through debt, uh, uh, famine, mismanagement, whatever, they were restored in the 50th year. This was the year when God showed his favor, restoring the land to those people to whom had been given right at the division under Joshua. Debts are canceled, slaves were released, possessions restored. There was redemption of the land. And the very first thing that happened on that morning of the Jubilee year would be the chauffeur ring. The trumpet would sound. And you know this, you know that, right? Right? See if you recognize this. Leviticus 25:10. Proclaim liberty throughout all the land unto the inhabitants thereof. Where is that verse found? Proclaim liberty throughout the land to all the inhabitants of it. It's on the liberty bell, right? Once in a lifetime, everybody would hear the joyous announcement of God's favor. Whatever lost is restored. Because this is the year of God's favor. Now, Jesus takes that and says, well, you know, the reason why they had this great jubilee year, you know why the trumpet was sounded, the announcement of going home, the restoration and all the rest of it? It's about me and my finished work and the proclamation of the gospel. I'm anointed to preach the gospel. I'm anointed to proclaim the acceptable year, this time of God's favor. Every time the gospel is preached, Jesus says, it's as if God is sounding the jubilee trumpet himself. Proclaim liberty throughout all the land and to all the inhabitants thereof. Heaven sends its heralds, its ambassadors to go to poor lost sinners with the good news of redemption, the sound of favor, grace, restoration, and liberty. And every time it happens, it's jubilee all over again. What's that trumpet signal to you and me? What is God doing for us in this year of his favor, the year of jubilee? Well, you see, Jesus says he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. Let me tell you, if you lost everything, your house, your lands, everything else, Who wanted to hear? Who most anticipated that jubilee trumpet? Wasn't the person who had nothing, who had lost everything? The the person who stood to gain the most from God's redeeming grace, restoring the years that the locusts had eaten? Christ says right there in the synagogue that his function is to proclaim God's trumpet to the poor, to bring this gospel to those who have nothing, to those who are in need, to those who are bankrupt, who are destitute, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who have, I have no righteousness to stand before God. I have no claim upon God's favor, no claim upon heaven. Quite the opposite. When we were without strength, Christ died for the ungodly. This gospel, you see, is for you and for me. Because I'm poor and in need. Yet the Lord, the Lord looks upon me. And says, this is the acceptable year of the Lord. I have favor. What is man that you're mindful of him? The son of man that you visit him. Christ was anointed for this. He comes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Who realize their unrighteousness. That they have nothing with which to commend themselves to God. And here God in gracious mercy comes to them. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted. Have you ever had your heart broken? 
I'm not just talking about, you know, how to move on to a different girlfriend <laughs> or guy. What I'm talking about is the effect of sin on our life. I bet you everyone here, you have people, some of you uh, as grandparents, you have a children or children's children and you're concerned about them. In relationships that sin has messed up, the effects of the fall of affected businesses, that, that sinking pit, uh, sinking feeling in the pit of your stomach when you're just torn apart, that the, the crushing weight of this fallen world and its curse comes upon you and it overwhelms you and you feel like you have no place to go with your tears, where will you turn? Psalm 107 describes this. They wandered in the wilderness in a desolate way. They found no city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted them. Then they cried out to the Lord in in their trouble. And the Lord didn't just leave them in their distress and say, Well, you made your bed, sleep in it. You deserve it. You rebelled. Look what the sin you brought into that marriage, into that relationship. That relationship between husband and wife or parents and children. No. Christ says he anointed me for people at the end of the rope, the brokenhearted, those at a loss of which way to go, to in me find comfort and healing. He sent me with words which can reach into the very soul of men and women, which are spirit and light. You remember what it says in Isaiah? A bruised reed he will not break. Some of you have had friends and, 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 and maybe family members who are just like that. They are so, so crushed in what has happened to them in relationships that it feels like if, if you touch them, they would just t- turn to dust. You scarcely know what words to say. But I tell you that in Christ's hands, which are bruised hands, that he comes and can take with compassion and love, but with strength and power, crushed people. And that his touch by his word and spirit and gospel upon the souls of men and women, so that they are lifted above their circumstances in sin and guilt and condemnation, so that they are pardoned and may write with God and they can say, it is well with my soul. Redemption through his blood. Proclaim liberty to the captives. He has broken the gates of bronze, cut the irons in two. He sets the captives free. You know, there were those in John 8 who heard Jesus proclaim this very thing. You want to know what this Luke is about? Read the Gospel of John. You're going to see it. Read the Gospel of Luke. You're going to see it. He comes to those in the book of Luke, or excuse me, in the book of John, John 8, and he says, You know, if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. And they go, what are you talking about? We're sons of Abraham. We've never been in bondage to anyone. And Jesus says to them, well, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. If you are a sinner, then you're in prison. Sin's your master. Sin enjoys keeping you in chains. And he does, he's so good at it that you don't even realize that you're enslaved. Let me tell you, you gripped by some life-dominating sin, Maybe by what you've heard in this church, the the blinders, the spirit is working, the blinders are coming off and you're seeing the effects of sin upon your life. And you say, but I can't get myself free from it. Let me tell you, slaves of sin, captive sinners, you can be set free today. 
I've come to preach the gospel to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to set the captives free. It is a wonderful, happy thing the moment you discover true liberty and freedom in Jesus Christ. My chains fell off. What is it? Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening and enlivening ray. I woke the dungeon flame with light. What then? My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. My question is, you've sang those words. Have you experienced that gospel reality of the Spirit of Christ? So that you are brought out of sin and the dominion of sin and condemnation and under his gracious yoke. For he has died, has been set free from sin. Recovery of sight to the blind. Sin causes spiritual blindness. You can't see yourself, the world, others, the word, life, death, God. Until he comes and opens your eyes and gives you a sight of your sin and of the mercy of God and Christ. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. Sin and guilt terrorize with fear and worries and anxiety. And Christ blows the jubilee trumpet and God releases them. And God does for them what they cannot do for themselves. Do you see that it doesn't matter... I mean, it does matter subjectively in our experience, but it doesn't matter what sin and what complications of sin into what situation that you find yourself, into which you've been brought. This Christ, this anointed one is able to deal with it. He is able to send you on your way rejoicing. He can go to your inmost being and bring comfort where no one else can. He can break the bondage of sin and set you free. You know, the repentant thief on the cross died in peace that day, awoke in paradise. Hear Christ. Open your eyes to the glory of God and the gospel. He can deliver you from whatever oppresses you. We didn't read the rest of that chapter in Isaiah, and don't worry, I'm not going to do it this morning. But I just want to mention to you as we close our worship service this morning what Jesus did not read. He read, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Closed the book, gave it back to the uh, attendant, right? Blowing the gospel trumpet like no one ever did. You know what comes next? And the day of the vengeance of our God. Christ did not preach judgment. He proclaimed the acceptable year of the Lord, the year of grace. But I'm telling you, that day will come. At the beginning of his ministry, all through his life, he came to seek and save that's lost. But be sure that you understand today, right now, here and now, this is the day of favor, the day of of God's grace, but the day of vengeance is coming. The day of wrath will come. So I tell you, don't delay coming to Christ. Don't delay seeking liberty from the only source where it can be found in Jesus Christ. 
Today, the Jubilee trumpet is sounding to you. Today, Christ is able to do for you right now everything that he could do when he read these words and proclaimed them in the synagogue in Nazareth. Today, Christ is still able to heal the brokenhearted, liberate the captives, set the prisoners free, give sight to the blind, to give new life to your soul, because this is the time of grace. But the day of judgment is coming. Make sure that today you find grace in Jesus Christ before judgment comes. Be sure that today you embrace Christ in His glory as Messiah, Savior, and Lord. The jubilee trumpet is sounding in the gospel. Blessed are the people who know that joyful sound. Amen.